Leadership is a matter of how to be, not how to do. It's the quality and character of the leader that determines the performance, the results. The how-to-be leader is what we keep thinking about. Where can we make the greatest difference? Where can we make the greatest contribution? Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. From my book, Chapter One, to several ink articles, to my work at West Point in the fall, Francis Hesselbein has influenced me a lot lately. I came to leadership from an analytical, geeky approach. That's my background. Her approach, much more about relationships and stories, much more about personal engagement. I think over the years, I've come that way, and my teaching is designed to bring someone who's geeky, analytical, or any other way to becoming more relationship-focused and developing the skills of empathy and compassion and so forth. But that's where I came from. You'll get a very different approach from her. She talks about a lot of hope she has in millennials, which she likens to the greatest generation from the 30s and 40s. Now, the media, I find, often disagrees about with millennials, so I hope that her research carries the day in the long run. And I want to point out, in her very storied past of being CEO of the Girl Scouts, transforming the organization, working with the White House, becoming a Presidential Medal of Freedom honoree, working with West Point, being named the greatest leader in America by Peter Drucker, she has had no advantages as just a regular person who was born in Johnstown, PA, and not a particularly well-known place. So please listen to how her life has been about taking on challenges, which brings her emotional reward. That's my main leadership message with regard to leadership in the environment, that working for others to serve others improves your life. A lot of people think, oh, if I do this, it's going to be hardship if I'm going to give up all these things. Serving others makes you feel good. I hope that's one of the big takeaways you get from listening to Francis. Let's listen to Francis. So welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Francis Sesselbein. Francis, how are you? I couldn't be better. I'm with you and your wonderful audience for this podcast. You are flattered me. I'm flattered. I'm honored that you say this. You know, in my book, I talk about meeting you in your office for the first time. And the first time I came here, I write about how there's pictures of you with all these presidents and with the generals and right behind me, there are these swords And it could be intimidating, but now that I've gotten to know you, it's so welcoming here, and all these things look so familiar. It's very comfortable. Thank you for having me. Well, it's an honor to have you and your audience. I'm just very happy. Thank you. And actually, since the last time I was here, through you, I met General Lloyd Austin III. My contemporary hero. And you've told me that before, and I see you, him, in the picture over there. And through, I, I was at West Point, which you 
you've worked at yourself. He, had, he holds the chair that you used to, class of 1951 leadership chair. Yes, for every other month for two years. Most inspiring, inspiring experience. What was inspiring about it? For you, for the, everyone else, or for both? I'm talking about myself. Mm-hmm. That's how I ground when you think we built West Point. And in 1802, we had our first classes. If you look at the history, the years we had our bloodiest battles and bloodiest wars, the same number of young men applied to West Point. Now, I have to say that the experience for me with the cadets was tremendous. The, yes. the discipline, the honor, and the friendliness and the support. Yes. I expected patriotism. I expected discipline. I didn't expect helpfulness, caring, support. Looking back, I should have, but that was really something. And Yes. Yeah. I can see why. Do you have any stories? Hallowed ground. I get out of the car. Mm -hmm. And I remember I studied before I taught there. I studied West Point. I wanted to know where I was going and I wanted to know its history. Everyone listening to this, if you have the chance to visit West Point, I recommend visiting. If you can go as a guest of a four-star general, all the better. (laughs) And... If you can get into a classroom, the the attention. Yeah. There's because I teach at NYU a lot. Yeah, I've taught at Columbia, and the students there are excellent, world class students. But the feel in the classroom at West Point was so attentive. There's everyone. You know, I asked them about that, and they said the taxpayers are paying. We owe it to. Them. We are responsible to them to d- deliver everything we can. And I was really touched. It was uh, thank you for getting the ball rolling on that. And I wanted to ask, in today's world, this podcast is leadership and the environment. Yes. And it appears that the environment could be cleaner. And if we want to clean it, it requires changing behavior, I think. And something that I see a lot, a lot of people today say, I want to travel. I want to see the Eiffel Tower. I don't want to think about throwing things away. I just want to live my life. I don't want to change. You've lived through World War II. It was a time when people had to, they didn't have to, but many people chose to change their behavior. And I feel like it was a different time then than now. I wonder if you could tell me the experience then of what it was like for people when they were called to serve or things like that. Is that something you could share? That was a long time ago. And... Many families were like my family. All the men went. They volunteered. They didn't wait to be drafted. They volunteered. And uh, there is something about, you know, you talk about, a lot of people talk about the millennials. Mm -hmm. And pews. Study Center has done a study and they have found that right now the young people we call the millennials 
are more like the 1930s and 40s than any cohort since. And we call them the greatest generation. The 30s and 40s? Yes. Mm -hmm. They were the greatest generation. Now, here we have another. The millennials are more like the 30s and 40s than any cohort since. Isn't that exciting? It's exciting. Part of me is saying, what about me? (laughs) But if that's what it shows, so that tells me to have hope that the current generation or the, the young people rising today will start doing things that people have not been doing yes, for some time. They already are. And when I, I look at them and I talk about bright and write about bright future. Mm-hmm. And the other day, a friend of mine, a gentleman, said, Francis, what are you drinking these days? Mm-hmm. And I said, well... All the caffeine-free Diet Coke I can find. <laughs> huh. He said, no, I mean alcohol. I said, well, two glasses of champagne a year. Uh-huh. And um, he laughed. He said, no, I'm talking about this bright future stuff. Uh-huh. Why? Uh-huh. I said, if you study... The people, the group of young people we call the millennials, they are finding that today's 15 to 23s are more like the 30s and 40s than any cohort since. And have you have you worked with them directly? Yes. Have you seen? So you've seen it. Yes, and they uh, they volunteer. Mm-hmm. And they want to serve. And I say, serve is to live. And they don't say, what do you mean? They say, well, of course. I get my energy from the people we call, the young people we call the millennials. They are so inspiring. They're volunteering everywhere. Mm -hmm. Isn't that it took... This time, 30s and 40s, you know where we are now, mm-hmm. and here we have a generation. You're making me smile because so many people characterize the current generation as lethargic or waiting. Oh, and I- they don't know them. They're not around them. They don't work with them. Mm-hmm. Or they would find sorry and someone's delusion. Glad to hear. Well, okay. Then can you take me back again to, by the way, for people listening, we're in New York City and outside there's this fire truck going by and I think there's traffic. So it's like standing right outside. Yes, indeed. That's part of Manhattan. I'll tell you, could we put a little postscript Uh on it's part of Manhattan? I'm in a beautiful, we are in a beautiful office at 320 Park Avenue. I look out my window, hello, Waldorf Astoria Hotel <laughs> and St. Bartholomew's Church. And we have never paid rent for 26 years. This corporation gives us 
our offices, Mutual of America Life Insurance Company. And people can't see the charm in her eyes when she says this of that. I'm thinking they're getting the better end of this deal. Oh. They get you, right? I've been on their board since 1980 when they decided to bring the CEOs of their three largest clients onto the board. And I was CEO of the Girl Scouts of the USA at that time. And we were their largest account. So I came on the board in 1980. Mm-hmm. A woman on a corporate board in those days? Yes, yes, here. I am still on that board. You say a woman on the board in those days. And there's something about you that feels like when you do something, it's obvious. Like, Yes, it might be might have been new for a woman to do something, but for Frances Hesselbein, it's of course she does things like that. It's is there something am I reading too much into Well, there's something it was in the New York Times a week ago or two weeks ago, and they had the name of a woman who had been just named the chairman of the United Way Fund Drive for New York City. Her first name was Barbara. And they told who she was, and she was now the first woman who ever chaired New York City's United Way. What they didn't know was I was the first woman in the world to chair a United Way campaign in Little Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Now, can you take me back to when you started there? If you're the first woman in the world to do this, are you nervous? Are you scared? Are you expecting problems? Are you expecting easy? What was it like internally? The bankers who came to see me about sharing the United Way campaign were just charming. And, of course, when you're called, you go. And um, I said, I would like to have as my vice chairman, Ernie Watchworth, the uh, president of the Steelworkers Union here. Mm-hmm. Oh, we will have to ask. Bethlehem Steel about this. Mm-hmm. And I said, when you do, tell them I would like also for the kickoff speaker, I would like to have the national president of AFL-CIO. I've just heard him speak. He's fabulous. We've never had anyone like that. Well, we'll have to ask Bethlehem Steel they came back smiling and looking surprised. They said, Bethlehem Steel said, tell Francis we will meet his plane and we will bring him and the speaker to our steel company executive dining room and have a kickoff luncheon honoring them. That night, the union steel workers had a big dinner honoring and kicking off. That year, we had the highest per capita giving of any United Way in the country. Now, the other day, 
New York Times had a little article about Barbara, who is chairing this year's campaign, and they said the only other time a woman had chaired a United Way campaign was in 1976, when Frances Hesselbein chaired the United Way campaign in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Now, in a hundred years, that's how old the United Way is, two women have chaired a United Way campaign. Isn't that fun? Yeah. (laughs) Fun is, I mean, to me, it's like to blaze a trail sounds, I think most people would say scary or nerve-wracking. No. No. It just seemed normal when they... Two bank presidents of banks came to see me and... And then you say, let's bring some labor in here. You're getting the, the, yeah, the bankers and the labor, labor together yes, as, as if it's the most... German. Well, yes, it was such fun. But since how many years ago that was? 1976. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been another woman in, 40 years, in the yeah. world who has chaired a United Way campaign until this year. You know, I have to ask you, if it's okay, I want to go back to when you said in your family, all the men served. And I'm, I'm asking you about how it felt sure. to do these things. They All the men served in the military. And that's what they did. Can you share? Can you share but what my you... grandfather did not. He was justice of the peace in a little Mining railroad town in the mountains of Western Pennsylvania, Squire Wicks. Hmm. But uh, all the men, young men, my father, my brother, my husband, my son, you did something you did. Yeah, it was something they did. How did, do you know how it felt? How did it feel for you? How did it feel for them? Because it's not. Proud. I was so proud and just felt. That's what you do. And my father also was the first mounted state police officer in the country. There were four in Pennsylvania. The first four, they had big black horses, dark horses, and they... uh, the governor, there's never been a state police officer in the country, but the miners were killing each other. They came from all over the world to work in the coal mines and the steel mills, but mostly the coal mines, and they brought their hatreds with them, so there would be a big battle up at the mines. But when the state police galloped up on their horses... Was all over. The fighting was all over. They were not afraid of the state police officers. Mm-hmm. They were terrified of the horses. And so, you, so you, this was an example of your grandfather who didn't serve, but he still served. He was still serving. I feel like service is what you do. What your family is a deep yeah, value. Yeah, he was uh, played the pipe organ in the Methodist Church and was justice of the peace. Had a little men's clothing store in a little town, Western Pennsylvania. 
Yeah. And if you're going to travel to 62 countries all over the world, that's the place to grow up. Mm. And, you know, when you read, I'm now kind of talking to the listeners a bit here. When you read Francis's material, to serve is to live shows up a lot. And what what's not coming off in the audio here is that when she talks about service, the look in her eyes and the expression on her face is, I mean, is pride and it's, it's life, like to serve is to live, like live. It's not, I think a lot of people think to serve is somehow beneath the person that you're serving, but that's not what I read from you at all. No, called to serve. You're called to serve. And what we do is change lives. We leaders, we people we who serve. We leaders, we find ways to change lives, the work we do. And to serve is to live. And there's something, something about today's world and the inspiration of the millennials. And I mentioned earlier they are more like the 1930s and 40s than any cohort since. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So now I would like to switch. We've been talking about leadership, and now I'd like to talk about the environment, the other half of this podcast. Yes. Is that something that you think about? Is it something that you care about? Is it a big thing for you, the environment? And when, when I say environment, the land, the air, the water that we all share. Of course. We're part of it. It surrounds us. And we're caretakers, and we do everything we can to preserve the environment that we have a healthy, healthy, the air we breathe is as pure as we can keep it. Mm -hmm. All the other ways, we are very conscious of the contribution we can make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like growing up in a steel mill, in coal and steel, different time. I mean, at big that coal, big steel, big labor. And at that time, I don't think anybody had any sense that we could do. We humans, small compared to our planet, could do something that would affect on a planet scale. And now, thing we know things are different today. I mean, that's the evidence looks like to me. And so we've had to change. We can't do some of the things we used to do. Or we have to do something's different. That's what it looks like to me. Oh, yes. That's why we have a mission. What is the greatest need out there? What, given who we are and where we are, what can we do that will make the greatest difference? I'm glad you mentioned that because part of what I do on this podcast is I ask the guest, at your option, if you would like to take on a personal challenge to act on something environmental that you care about. And 
it doesn't have to be something that solves everything overnight, but something that you would, and it can't be something where you tell other people to do it because I think there's a lot of people out there saying, Mm -hmm. telling people what to do. I don't think that's working very well. Yes. And it can't be just awareness because a lot of people say aware, but I think there has to be a behavior to it. Mm -hmm. Would you be interested in taking on a personal challenge to do something that will, as you, to protect the environment and it can be, I mean, it can be short term, it can be small, but as long as it's something, would you be up for doing something like that? Of course. And I think most people will give you the same answer. Yes, that has been the case. And what's interesting is that everyone says yes, but it's a different yes. It's because for some people it's global warming. For some people, it's clean air. For some people, it's clean water. For some people, it's the park at the end of the block. And so there, it's when I first started this, I thought everyone sees the environment like I do, but they don't. Everyone sees it differently. I wonder, if, and one thing, I don't come up with the challenge because I want the person to do something that they care about. Is there anything that you could come up with that would be something to live by your values more? Yes. See that every young person in our country, all racial ethnic groups everywhere, they all have an opportunity to finish high school. Uh-huh. Right now, if you take 700 young men, Hispanic or black, who are 15 years old, 700, how many of them are in school? What percent? What percent of Hispanic and black youths are in school? 15 years old. 15 years old. I mean, we want it to be 100%. And you wouldn't ask me if it was 100%. So... Of course not. I would hope 70, 80%. I fear 50%? No. If you look at these young men and you say how many of them are in school out of 700, 12. 12? 12 out of 700 15-year-old black and Hispanic. Now that doesn't sound right. Let me let me kick that around a little bit. It is so few that you shudder. And this is, I, I presume you know because this is something that you're working on. Oh, yes, we're working. I believe, and we have a lot of our people who believe, that we have to see that all of our young people have a high school education. Mm-hmm. When you look at the few who finish high school, who are black or Hispanic, they, by the time they're 15, they're on the street. Now, how do we, there are schools with no libraries. There are schools, public schools, with no handbooks, only a teacher has a handbook. Now, this isn't something I've read. I was principal for a day, 
and I taught in a high school in the South Bronx, and every week went up and taught a class. And it was called Principal for a Day. Mm -hmm. They had no handbooks, textbooks. Only a teacher had one. And he or she Xeroxed uh, lessons from their textbook because the students had no books. They had a beautiful, big, empty library with no books. And they had never graduated a class from this high school that I adopted as principal mm -hmm. for a day. When the gentleman came from the education office, he said, Mrs. Hesselbein, do you really understand what you asked for? You asked for a school with limited resources and a few challenges? I said, yes. He said, well, they're sending you to the South Bronx to high school that has never graduated a class. You have this way about you. Of, you go for these challenges that most people don't want. I said, I know exactly where I'm going, and we're going to see if they have a library. So I called a friend of mine who was in a garage, and I said, I have a definitive list of books for a high school library. If I buy all of them, it's $6,000, and I don't want to buy at twelve. I want to buy $6,000 worth of books for this school in the South Bronx. Call you back and say, if I find three, will you find three, and we'll buy every book on the list. Call you back. Call me back. He said, hey, forget about your 3000 Verizon's going to buy every book. All right. You have this, you ask people for things in a way that they want to do it. I was so stunned. And then I got a call. We're having the grand opening of the library. And we want you to be here, please. March 15th, I guess they're two young black young men and boys, both were very small. And they saw themselves as, I don't know, some wonderful, the protector of the library. Anyway, when I get there, they had taken a piece of newsprint and a magic marker, and they made a poster above the door of the library and said, Mark 15 is... Francis Hesselbein Day in the South Bronx. Now, I have to ask again, you take on these challenges that most people shy away from. It's extra work. You put in effort that you don't have to. Other people might choose to use their success to have cushy luxury and things like that. After you do these things, how do you personally feel when things like this happen? Well, I feel I'm called to serve. It's not something I've made up or developed. It's a powerful call. 
that if we do not educate our children in this country, we will not sustain the democracy. So that means schools, libraries. And I have a dream that someday I can convince a group of churches that have a church in the neighborhood like that, and they adopt the school and build a library for it. You know, the, wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, it's like one success leads to another success. Build on each thing to make more. And something I've known before I met you, I knew the concept of that—that that helping others makes you feel good. It's not the only reason, but it's an—it's a great reason. And I have to say that working with you has really brought that out of like, not just, oh, it's kind of neat, but it's a full expectation that that's, of course, that's going to make you feel good. That's what we're about. And I, now you say the millennials probably are filled with that. Oh, they, people are writing about them, how the first time since the 30s and 40s, we've had a generation like this. The millennial people call them the millennials. They called them in the 30s and 40s the greatest generation, not at the time, but since. So I, I look at the young people who come to visit here. They drop by, and because um, when I speak somewhere, I always say, no matter where I'm speaking. Now, you all have wonderful memories, don't you? And they bellow, yes! I say, all right. Remember 320 Park Avenue, New York City. So when you're visiting or working in New York, stop by for coffee, breakfast, lunch, and a warm welcome awaits you. You would be surprised how many people find 320 Park Avenue. I can testify that I've gotten a warm welcome, many more warm welcomes. I want to close with one thing. And if I sound pushy, so be it. When you talked about helping these youths to restore some equality and to increase their education, what I... One thing I want in when people do things is to do something that they weren't going to do otherwise. Is there a way that you could, you're already working on this project. Is there something you could do more? And if I sound pushy, I apologize, that you wouldn't have done because you're already doing some of these things. You can always do more. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, I, what I think is so touching we build the library. We have all the books, $6,000 worth of books there. And that may, for the first time in history, they graduated a class. And five members of student council had college scholarships. Wow. Yes. So we went from nothing to a lot. All you need to do is know where you want to go. I didn't say I want the most beautiful high school in New York City 
with the greatest grades, the highest grades. No, I said, I will describe the school. Well, I'm going to check back with you again next time to find out how things, how things are going with this project. Before wrapping up this conversation for the listeners, is there anything to close with talking about maybe leadership or the environment or both to leave for people listening? Yes. I'll repeat my, uh, how I describe leadership. Leadership is a matter of how to be, not how to do. It's the quality and character of the leader that determines the performance, the results. So the how-to-be leader is what we keep thinking about. Where can we make the greatest difference? Where can we make the greatest contribution? And I really believe that if we, A, understand how many 15-year-old young men are not in high school, and then we say, what can we do about this? I find it so refreshing, your perspective on leadership, of what can I do yeah. for others? How to be, not how to do well, thank you. And I'll ask one last thing. Is there anything I didn't think to ask that I should have asked? Well, I'll repeat something I said earlier. Abraham Lincoln is my historic hero. Mm-hmm. And General Lloyd Austin III is my contemporary hero. Now, everyone should have, when they say, where have all the heroes gone? You hear people say this. Mm-hmm. Where have all the great leaders gone? Where are all the heroes? Where are they? And I said, hi. How about General Lloyd Austin III? And you look at what he's done and where he's been and the contribution he has made, and it's very inspiring. Now, people who are hearing his name for the first time can look him up on the internet. I got to spend a few days with him at West Point. So there's an ink article that I wrote about him. It doesn't capture the full man. Nothing could. Yeah. He is just, and to think that we met in 2005 when he called me from the 18th Airborne Corps, which he then was leading. I'd like you to come and speak to 70 officers. And we've been, as the Army says, battle buddies ever since. All right. I'm going to wrap up at that, speaking about General Lloyd Austin III, about you serving, about you being battle buddies. And I'll update people on how things have gone from after the next time we speak. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Well, it's been a great honor I've loved every question, Josh, and it's just a privilege. And I hope anything we can ever do to help you in your work, you will ring my bell. I will do that. service to live. Thank you. 
All right, I'm going to turn off the microphone. It's it's just a pleasure hearing your stories. So many things to pick up on. To think that she's talking to a giant steel company and says to them, I want labor represented on this board and presents it as if, yeah, that's just what I did. And they just accepted it. I look up to someone who's able to not make a big deal out of something and get the job done. And that happened with being on the boards, being CEO, lots of different things that she did. First time as a woman for 40 years in, in places. I really like how she gets the job done, doesn't make a big deal about it, doesn't hide it. With regard to the personal challenge, she picked a personal challenge that was helping students. And one of my rules is something that you're not already doing. Another one is that you make the difference yourself, that your behavior changes the impact on the environment. I didn't really push on that, but actually afterward, I saw her notes that she prepared for the conversation and she actually had picked up a challenge that we didn't get to. So we'll have to leave that for another time. Another thing I noticed in her notes was that she changed challenge to opportunity. And that's something I have to think about because challenge makes something sound hard. Opportunity sounds like an opportunity. I think I might have to adopt that for my podcast. Another thing in her notes was that she had reduced, reuse, recycle, which we didn't talk about. And she added a fourth R, which was responsibility, to take responsibility. We didn't get to that in this conversation, hopefully the next one. Another thing that made a big impression on me was how she talked about in another time, people just served. It's just what we did. Today, it seems like a lot of people feel like, if you ask me not to go to Paris, that's too much to ask. And yet in another time, people just served. That tells me that that's what we're capable of. And I hope people listening are thinking, if other people could do it back then, make big changes to their lives and find that improve their lives, then I can too. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering, I can make a difference. And living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.